0: Many of you uh, know about Mark Twain and over the years you've read some of the books that he wrote like The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court and you know that Mark Twain was not his real name. His actual name was Samuel Clemens. So why the fictitious name? Why over the years did he prefer the pen name over the real name? Well, it had to do with his experiences on the Mississippi River. I mean, ever since he was a kid, he had this dream about being a riverboat captain. And then as a young man, the dream came true. He got his pilot's license. And now he could start navigating some of those big boats down the mighty Mississippi. And when he did that, he just had the time of his life. But then the Civil War broke out, and uh, he had to give up the dream. But even though he left his life on the Mississippi, he never lost his love for that place. So years later, when he started to write, he preferred that pseudonym to be known as Mark Twain. See, that's one of the expressions the guys would use when they would work on the riverboats because the waters of the Mississippi just never stay the same. Depending on the rain or the lack of the rain, the depth of the water just always fluctuating. So in order to keep those big boats safe and to make sure they never run aground, you have to continually do a sounding. A sounding is just simply a way to check for the depth of the water. So back in the 1800s, here's how they did it. The lead man would come out to the front of the ship and he'd uh, take his measurement. Then he'd shout out to the pilot, Mark Twain. Meaning the water here is at least 12 feet deep, if not deeper, it's safe to move on. Now, the reason why I'm talking about all this is because the scripture we're going to stay today, Acts chapter 27, we're going to find the Apostle Paul on a ship, a large ship, and they're in trouble. I mean, they have got caught in this big storm, and this boat's been blown way off course, and it's been weeks since anybody's seen the light of the, star, the sun or even a single star in the sky, which means it's been weeks since they've had any way to navigate or get their bearings. Because back in this day and time, they didn't have compasses, there were no computers, no technology of any kind. So the men on this ship, they're just totally lost. Out here in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, about to encounter a tiny island that most of these sailors have never heard of before. So you get to verse 27, and one day in the darkness of the storm, these sailors, they can sense they're about to reach land. And because they've never been in this part of the sea before, they want to make sure they don't crash against the rocks. So they do what the guys on the Mississippi River used to do. They do a sounding. In the first century world, the way they do that is they'd have this really long rope. On the end of one rope would be this really heavy weight. And then they'd tie a series of knots in the rope about six feet apart, about the span of a man's arms from fingertip to fingertip. Then they'd throw the weight in the water and wait until it would hit the ocean floor. And Once it landed, that weight landed on the bottom of the sea, then they'd start to pull the rope up. And as they would pull it up, they would count the number of knots, and that would give them an indication how deep the water is. Is it deep enough? Is it safe to proceed on? And then something else to keep in mind is, as you're reading through this chapter, this is not the first time the Apostle Paul's ever been on a boat. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 27, he's been serving Jesus for almost 30 years now. And according to the book of Acts, he's already taken at least 11 trips over some part of the Mediterranean Sea on many different kinds of boats. So by the time you get to this chapter, the Apostle Paul has already traveled more than 3,000 miles by ship. And then Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, on three of those voyages, he was involved in some kind of a shipwreck. So here's a guy who's seen it all and done it all, which means there were a number of times he saw the sailors do what they're doing here. Take a sounding. So I wonder if that's one of the pictures that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote those words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and he told us, test everything. Meaning, don't just swallow every idea that's thrown your way. Don't just buy into everything that's offered to you. Don't just assume because somebody said something, it's automatically true. No, put it to the test. Check it out. Whether you're watching a commercial on TV or you're reading an editorial in the newspaper or you're listening to an opinion being expressed on talk radio, do a sounding. Check out the depth of what's being promoted. Is this right? Is this true? Do we really have all the facts here? Or are we just being fed a line? Is it really safe to proceed on with an idea like this? Or are we going to be headed for trouble because we believe something we shouldn't have believed? It always makes me think of that story back in the Old Testament, the true story about Jacob. You remember Jacob? Jacob was that guy that, lifelong, he was just all the time pulling the wool over other people's eyes. All the time manipulating the facts so he could deceive others and make things better for himself. Whether he did that with his brother Esau or his father Isaac or his father-in-law Laban. Jacob was the guy who was always pulling some kind of a con. And yet you get to Genesis chapter 37 and it's Jacob who gets conned. You remember what happened? He sends his son Joseph out to check on the older brothers. You know, they're a long way from home and dad hasn't heard from him in a while. And He's getting kind of concerned. So, hey, Joseph, do me a favor. Go out and check on your older brothers. I want to make sure they're okay. And Joseph, being the obedient son that he was, says, yeah, dad, I'll, I'll see what I can find out. Takes him a long time, but finally he tracks him down. And when he finally gets there, it's Joseph who gets mugged. Because the older boys, they've never liked their kid brother, and they see an opportunity to get rid of him. I mean, they're actually intending to kill him when a group of Ishmaelites happen to come along, and the boys see a chance to make some money. So instead of killing Joseph, they decide to sell him off as a slave. And they allow the Ishmaelites to take him far, far away to the land of Egypt. Well, now they've got a problem. What about Dad? What do we say to him? How do we explain Joseph not being around anymore? And that's when they noticed the coat, the famous coat, the coat of many colors, the coat that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and now they realize, now we've got an angle to work with. Now we've got a way to pull off this scam. So they come up with this plan. They kill an animal. They take that coat. They dip it in the blood. And then they just decide, we'll just take this back home. We'll hand it to our dad, and we'll just let him draw his own conclusions. So they bring the bloody coat back home, they hand it to Jacob and say, Hey, Dad, we found this line out in the fields, not sure what it means, but we thought you'd want to see, thought you'd want to know. And immediately, Jacob, when he sees the coat and the blood in the coat, he just assumes the worst. My son Joseph's been attacked by some wild animal. My son Joseph has been killed. And for the next 20 years, he mourns the death of his son. For the next 20 years, Jacob believes something that's not true. There's no, there was no attack, there was no wild animal, there was no death, Joseph is still alive. But Jacob doesn't know that, and why? Because he never does a sounding. He never takes the time to test the story consider the facts, weigh the evidence. Is this really what happened here? No. He just lets the circumstances just kind of overwhelm him. Hey, how can you deny what you've seen and heard? Bloody coat missing set. What what else would you assume? I mean, this experience is just so overwhelming, so devastating. How can it not be true? And yet all the circumstances were lying to him. Joseph's not dead. Joseph's still alive. And one day, Jacob was going to see him again. Now here's the point. The Bible tells us, Jeremiah chapter 17, we're just like that. We're just like Jacob. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse nine says, the human heart is deceitful. Literally, Jacob-like. It's easily fooled, easily tricked. This heart is quick to jump to the wrong conclusion. This heart is quick to believe the wrong things. It's easily led astray. So this idea, follow your heart, no. You'll come crashing into the rocks. Test, put things to the test. Check things out, do a sounding or you're going to find yourself running into some really painful consequences. Now, what has all this got to do with Acts chapter 27? Well, all week long I've been asking myself that same question. I mean, I've been curious. Why does Dr. Luke, the guy who writes the book of Acts, why does he take so much time, so much space in this chapter talking about this, this trip across the Mediterranean Sea? I mean, he never did that before. The 11 other times that Paul travels across these waters, uh, Luke just kind of summarizes in a few quick words. Hey, Paul was here in this town. And he goes to this town. And he happened to travel by boat. Why not do the same thing here? Hey, Paul's getting ready to head to the city of Rome. So he boards a ship. Once he arrives at Rome, here's what happens. And you move on with the story. No, here in this chapter, he takes 44 verses just to talk about this ride that Paul's taking on a boat. Why so many words and why so many details when nowhere in this chapter is the gospel ever preached and nowhere in this chapter does anybody end up becoming a Christian? Why does Dr. Luke take so much time, so much space just to describe this ride that Paul is taking on a boat? Here's the answer I came up with. Because all the way through this journey, all this long, hard ordeal where nothing is going right, everything seems to be going wrong, all the way through this experience, the Apostle Paul's got to learn to do what he sees the sailors doing, do a sounding. Hey, are we close to shore? Are we about to reach our destination? Is it time to drop anchor? Are we reading our circumstances right? Hey, pull out the rope. Drop it in the water. Let's take a measurement here. Let's see if we're thinking straight. So spiritually speaking, the Apostle Paul's got to do the same thing with his circumstances. When nothing seems to be going right in his circumstances, if he doesn't do some kind of a sounding, his circumstances could lie to him, lead him to believe things about uh, God that are not true, that, man, with all these bad things happening, obviously he's not here, he's not involved, he must not care. Obviously God's not in control. And yet the truth was, God was watching over every part of this trip. And all the way through this trip, he had Paul right where he wanted him to be. Through this entire experience, Paul was right at the very center of God's will. Many centuries ago, there was a Jewish rabbi over in Europe, and he came to this little village one night looking for a place to stay. But because the people in this town hated Jews, they refused to give him any kind of lodging. The rabbi never complained, never uttered a protest. He simply looked up the sky and just kind of quietly whispered to himself, all that God does, he does well. Now, at the time, with no place to say, that didn't seem to be true. Circumstances sure didn't verify that fact, but the Jewish rabbi spoke those words anyway. He wanted to remind himself, even though it doesn't seem like it right now, life's a little bit rough, but all that God does, he does well. So the rabbi took his lamp and his rooster and his donkey and he just went out and spent the night in the woods. Well, he got the rooster and the donkey secured and he sat down and lit the lamp and he pulled out the scrolls because he figured, hey, I'll finish the day just kind of reading a few scriptures. Put a good thought in my mind. But as he was sitting there trying to read, a gust of wind came along and blew the lamp over and broke it. Now, without any light, he couldn't read anymore. So (laughs) he just laid down on the ground and tried to go to sleep. And while he was lying there, he just whispered to himself, all that God does, he does well. That night he slept really soundly, in fact so soundly he didn't even notice when some thieves came along and took his rooster and took his donkey. So the next morning the Jewish rabbi wakes up and sees all that he's lost and he's angry and frustrated and man, nothing's going right for me. Then he just kind of composed himself for a second and looked back up at the sky and all that God does he does well. Down in his heart, deep in his heart, he knew that was true, and yet nothing in his surroundings right now seemed to verify that fact. So it took a lot of faith for him to keep speaking those words and to keep believing it. Later that morning, he decided to go back to town to see if he could possibly pick up some supplies. And yet when he got back to that village, he was just horrified because the middle of the night, some soldiers had come along and attacked the village and killed every one of the inhabitants. And when the rabbi took time to kind of trace the tracks, he saw those soldiers had come through the same part of the woods where he'd been sleeping. And suddenly the rabbi realized if my lamp had been burning late at night, they would have seen me. And if the rooster and donkey had not been taken, they would have created all kinds of commotion. And no doubt those soldiers would have taken my life too. And as he stood there and considered all the implications, suddenly there was this immense feeling of gratitude and reverence in his heart. And so the Jewish rabbi just bowed his head and spoke this word of praise, all that God does, he does well. That's the experience of the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 27. Let's take a quick look. When you get to Acts chapter 27, uh, Paul's been serving Jesus for almost three decades. But all his travels have been in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Well, now Paul wants to branch out. He wants to explore some new territory. He's ready to head west. He wants the city of Rome to now become his base of operations. And then after working from there, kind of spread out to other places in Europe, countries like Spain, so about 3 years before you get to Acts chapter 27, 3 years earlier Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome telling him about his desire to come there, want to meet you, get better acquainted with you, kind of work with you for a while, and then if you don't mind, if you'd mind taking me on to some support, I'd like to travel to other places and plant churches in places like Spain and other places as well. Great idea, great plan. But then the apostle Paul encounters this detour, Acts chapter 21. He comes back to the city of Jerusalem, another one of those long trips across the Mediterranean Sea. He comes back to Jerusalem because the church here is struggling. They've gone through a horrible famine. They've been terribly persecuted. I mean, they're just taking it on the chin. So Paul's been going around gathering up this offering from all the churches in Europe and Asia to bring it back to help lift their spirits and really help them out. And yet here in the midst of doing a good thing while he's here in Jerusalem, he gets arrested and put in jail. So from Acts chapters 22 to chapter 26, for the next couple of years, you watch Paul as he's sitting there in prison. And because his enemies are all the time trying to find a way to get him executed, he is constantly having to stand trial and defend himself. Defending himself before Roman governors like Felix and Festus and speaking to kings like Herod Agrippa. And finally, Paul says, I want my case heard by Caesar himself. And because he's a Roman citizen, he has the right to make that request. So chapter 27, now he's headed to Italy. Well, you've got to keep in mind, in that day and time, when you're traveling by ship, a, a, a trip from Israel to Italy, under really good conditions, you could make it in about five weeks. But it's going to be about six months before Paul ever gets there. First part of the trip, verses 1 to 6, Acts chapter 27, everything goes well. First 15 days, first 500 miles, man, everything's smooth, smooth sailing. But then you get to verse 7, and things start to get rough. The wind starts moving again. That next stage of the journey, the next 130 miles, the wind's moving against them. The ship has slowed down. They're losing all kinds of precious time. They're getting more and more behind schedule. So by the time you get to verse 9, now they're at the early part of the month of October. And that's bad news because... And that day and time from the latter part of October to the early part of March, you didn't want to be sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. Extra long nights, little daylight, lots of cloud cover, all kinds of nasty storms, rough winds of hurricane force. So literally for those four-month period of time, the Roman Empire just shut down the shipping lines. It's too dangerous to be out in the Mediterranean. And while they're here in a port at the island of Crete, Paul says the same thing. He talks to the captain of the ship. He talks to the Roman centurion, The guy's in charge. Hey, hey. Let's just wait till a better time to finish the trip. It's not safe to be out there. But these guys are thinking, hey, we still got a couple weeks. I think we might make it. So they pulled out to sea. And sure enough, they get caught in one of those typhoons. And the boat's now blown more than 500 miles off course. Out here in the middle of nowhere, and everybody's ready to lose hope. And that's where we pick up the account, verse 20. Notice what it says. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, we'll learn here in a few moments, of it's been at least two weeks since there's been any kind of light, no way to navigate, storms still raging on. All hope of ever being rescued was at last abandoned. And since all these guys on the ship, they've been without food for a long time, it's been at least two weeks, Paul stood up among them to offer a word of hope. Man, you should have listened to me. Not say, When we were back there a couple weeks ago I, on the island of Crete, we, sh- we should have stayed in port. And, but now we left and we suffered all this injury. They've gone through some really bad times. And understand, Paul here is not being some kind of smart aleck. He's not rubbing it in their face saying, hey, I told you so. That's not what's happening. He's just letting them know, hey, I've been on the sea many times before. i got all kinds of experience. When I spoke before, I was just looking out for you guys and your best interests. And now they begin to appreciate this. Hey, he really has us in mind. So right now they're all ears. Listen, guys, even though it looks hopeless right now, I want you to know it's not. Take heart. There will be no loss of life among you. We're going to lose the ship. We're in for some bad times, but not a man here will lose his life. And here's how I know so. For this very night, verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God. Now get this. I love how he identifies himself, the God whose I am. He is mine. I am his. The God to whom I belong, the God that I serve and worship. And he said, here's what God said to me. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. I, I got a plan for you. You will make it to Rome because I want you to testify to Caesar. And God not only has a plan for Paul, he's got a plan for every other guy on this ship, too. Because God says, and God has granted you all those who sail with you. See, Paul's been praying. And not just for himself, he's been praying that everybody else in this boat would be rescued as well. God's going to honor that prayer. So Paul says, verse 25, take heart, men. I have faith in, the God, in God that it will be exactly as he has said. And then he Hey, be honest with you, we're still in for some rough times. We're going to run aground in some island, a little place called Malta. Well, here's what happens. When the, 14 nights after, when the 14th night they come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, That's the middle part of the Mediterranean Sea, the sailors, they begin to sense, we're getting close to land. So, they took a sounding. Found that right now they're in water, it's about 120 feet deep. They went a little further, they did a sounding again, now they find they're in water about 90 feet deep. Yeah, we're getting close to some kind of place, and not knowing what the terrain is like, fearing that they might run into the rocks, they put down some anchors, four anchors, and they prayed for daylight. We just need some light to be able to see what's going on here. Well, some of the sailors have kind of pushed the panic button. Man, I don't think this is going to turn out well. I I know what Paul said, but I'm not sure I buy that. So they're looking for a way to escape, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they lowered this little lifeboat into the water under the pretense, oh, we're, we're not running away, we're just going to check out the anchors here. They weren't. Paul knew what they were up to. So Paul said to the centurion soldiers, you got the sailors, soldiers, navy, army. Right now it's Paul siding up with the army. He said to the centurion and the soldier, says, unless these men stay ship, you can't be saved. So the soldiers, they kinda, they're kind of acting rationally. All they had to do is just put a guard here, guard the lifeboat. But they're so mad and so angry and frustrated. They say, they're trying to run away with us? Yeah, and they just cut the rope and off goes the lifeboat. Oh, man, what are we going to do now? And yet in the midst of all this foolishness, God can still exercise his wisdom. See, you read through the rest of the chapter and you'll learn that... Uh, The ship hits a sandbar, so they they run aground, and with the pounding of the waves, the ship itself falls apart, and yet all 276 passengers, in the midst of this raging storm, all 276 passengers make it safely to shore. That's astounding. See, about four years after this, there was a Jewish man by the name of Josephus, and he writes about this in one of his books. About the year 63 A.D., he's traveling across the Mediterranean Sea on a ship that has 600 passengers, and they encountered one of these bad storms, so bad that they had to abandon ship. They're swimming all night long, and yet only 80 out of the 600 survived. That was typical of what happened out there in the Mediterranean Sea. The fact that all 276 passengers in this boat made it safely, and you've got to understand, other than the sailors, none of these other guys knew how to swim. And in the midst of a raging storm, they make it safely to shore. That's not natural. That's supernatural. It's the hand of God's providence. God specially intervening in the circumstances to make sure that all things work together for good. So you step back from the scripture and what do you learn? Instead of five weeks, it took Paul six months before he finally got to Rome. On that six month long detour, he had to be thinking, God, what are you up to? But it's during that six-month period of time, as we're going to learn in Acts chapter 28, that Julius, the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier who's responsible for Paul, hey, I've got this prisoner, I'm supposed to get him to Rome. It's during that six-month-long period that he gets an opportunity to really get to know Paul, which means Acts chapter 28, by the time they finally get to Rome, instead of Paul being put in some deep dungeon, cut off and isolated from all human contact, treated like he's some kind of dangerous criminal, which he normally would have been, instead he's just put under house arrest. He used to stay in an apartment, one, two rooms. Yeah, he's still chained to a Roman guard, but now he's got some measure of freedom. He's allowed to have visitors, he can write books, he can still teach classes and hold seminars. And so over the next two years, as he's there in Rome waiting to speak, have this trial with Caesar, over the next two years, he writes several of the books that we now have in the New Testament. Over the next two years, he gets an opportunity to witness to some of the Praetorian Guard, the elite of the Roman army. Over the next two years, he gets an opportunity to meet and get acquainted with and witness to some of the members of Caesar's own family. Over those next two years, he has an opportunity to touch and influence an incredible amount of significant people that otherwise he would have had no access to. And how did he get that access? because no doubt when they finally got to Rome was Julius the Roman centurion said hey this guy's no criminal I just spent six months with Paul we just went through six months of the most harrowing experiences of my entire life and if it weren't for Paul none of us would have made it safely to Rome he literally saved our lives this guy's no flight risk Cut him some slack And all of a sudden, a door was open that wouldn't have been open in any other way had not God taken Paul on this six-month-long detour. See, even though it was hard to see, especially in those moments he's in the storm out here, even though it was hard to see at times, yet when Paul got to the end of his trip, he could look back and testify, all that God does. He does well. I'll close with this. Down in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, there's a preacher by the name of King Duncan. And he tells about this woman he knows, a young lady who wanted to go to India to serve as a missionary. She was just ready to go when her mother got involved in a serious car accident, really bad accident. So she delayed the trip, stayed behind to help her mom out. Well, over the next three years, her mom never got any better, and she died. Just before she died, the mother pulled her in one day and said, Honey, I want to ask a favor. I know you're anxious to get to India, and you want to serve God there, and I think that's awesome. I'm all for that but before you go to India, would you check on your sister? I don't think she's doing well. Mother died, and the young lady, she handled all the arrangements, and that was difficult to go through. Then she went out to California to check on her sister, and sure enough, she was struggling with some kind of strange virus, and she was seriously ill. So the young lady stayed around to help around the house. A couple months later, her sister died, and the young lady was just devastated. lost my mother, lost my sister. I don't think I can take any more hits like this. She went back home to try to finish preparations. Hey, it's time for me to go to India. When she learned that her sister's husband came down with that same strange virus and a few weeks later he died, leaving behind five little children. Man, what's going to happen to the kids? Are they going to become orphans? And at that point in time, the young lady realized, I'm never going to get to India. My mission field's right here. I need, I, I know those kids better than anybody else, I need to care for those children. So she just moved to California spent the rest of her days raising those five kids. And it wasn't until years later she began to understand what God was doing. Because once the five children were raised, three of the five went to India to serve as missionaries. Now instead of one, there were three on the field. You see, because all those years, even though she encountered one closed door after another, God kept taking her on one detour after all those years because she chose to follow God's plan, not her plan. A greater good was accomplished. Listen, when you find yourself in a set of circumstances where it's hard to see and hard to believe, is God really here? Is He really involved? I wonder if He even cares. It's at that point in time, you and I have got to do the same thing the Apostle, did to, the Apostle Paul did here. You've got to do a sounding. You use a rope, you use this truth. The God whose I am, the God to whom I belong, the God that I serve and worship. And with that truth, you begin to realize, even though I don't see it at times, he's watching over every part of my life. And one day when I get to the end of the journey, I'm going to be able to look back and testify that all along the way, God was making all things work together for good. Let's pray.